Recall, if you will, the murder of Joy Blanchard, which occurred on November 3rd of 2007. Now, we brought this brutal attack to your attention back in Episode 5. We alluded to the fact that after the Hunter and Sherman murders happened, that because of the similarity of the M.O.s of the killer in both instances, that the Omaha PD was of the belief that the same killer may be responsible for both sets of killings. After Thomas and Shirley's bodies were discovered with knives that the killer or killers had taken from the home, sticking out of the victim's necks, Omaha PD began investigating the Blanchard and Hunter Sherman killings as if they were connected. The challenge for the investigators was to determine just exactly how they were connected. Now, we as the attorneys in the matter got involved in the case in 2013 after Anthony Garcia was arrested. And within a couple of months of us entering our appearance in the matter, discovery started to roll in. Now, the initial set of discovery that came in was from the Hunter case, and it was voluminous. As we are working through the Hunter investigation now, you as our listeners have a pretty good understanding that Omaha is having a very difficult time in the early stages of this investigation determining just exactly who the target was in the horrific double homicide. Now, we will get into the potential connection between the Hunter-Sherman murders and the Blanchard murders much more thoroughly as we progress throughout the case, as the Blanchard murder would play a pivotal role in many ways with respect to the Garcia case. And it is a fact that by the time we were hired by Anthony's family, that Omaha PD went to great lengths to extract every indication from the Hunter discovery that was tendered to us to remove any and all evidence from all of the reports that the two separate homicides were being investigated with the idea that the same perpetrator had committed both crimes. Now, we want to clarify what the term discovery means just a little bit. So when a defense attorney enters their appearance on behalf of a defendant, they become the attorney of record in the case. And there exists a Supreme Court rule in Illinois and all other states that once a lawyer has entered the picture on behalf of the defendant, the state has an obligation to start tendering anything and everything that they have in their possession, as far as police reports, lab reports, evidence, photographs, written and recorded statements of the witnesses, of the victims, basically everything that the state intends on using at trial has to be turned over to the defense. Now, don't get me wrong, this is a two-way street, meaning that the defense has the very same obligation to turn over anything that they uncover during their own investigation to the state as well. It's called reciprocal discovery. Now, there's a certain amount of what I'd like to refer to as the honor system that is involved with the tendering of discovery. If you listen to the Gacy season, you know that early on, when we discovered the fact that the photo receipt narrative about when and where it was found was completely fabricated in order to create the necessary link between Gacy and Peast to get Gacy under arrest, that I wondered aloud in the pod, how in the hell my father and Sam missed the fact that the photo receipt was not listed anywhere on the original search of December 13th. I just couldn't wrap my head around how this occurred. It wasn't until we interviewed my father later in the season when I explained to him just exactly what had gone down that he finally examined Humbert's property evidence log from the search on the 13th that my father told us that he had never seen that document, ever. Now him saying that to me made it all become crystal clear 
that they didn't miss it. Instead, they never had seen the document. What happened is that Kozenzak simply plucked that report out of the discovery pile that he was sending to the state, who then in turn would send it off to the defense. Kozenzak then proceeded to draft his own property evidence log, which, of course, included the photo receipt. Consequently, my father and Sam had no idea that a Cook County Sheriff police officer named Carl Humbert was in Gacy's house on the 13th of December. Now, this brings me back to the point that there is a presumption that is made by the defense attorneys and prosecutors that both sides are playing fairly when it comes to providing the other side with all of the evidence that they respectively have in their possession. So initially, with Gacy, I just assumed that the document that we had in our possession some 43 years after the fact had also been in the possession of my father and Amaranti back then. Because, well, that's the rule, as dictated by the Illinois Supreme Court. Lawyers can't cherry-pick the evidence that they're going to be turning over to the other side. And that can be a bitter pill to swallow for the state or for the defense if they have in their possession a particular piece of evidence that is extremely damaging to either of their respective cases. If you're sitting there listening and you're saying to yourself, tough shit, we're trying to get to the truth here. Well, you must know that the truth and what we have come to accept as justice are not necessarily always the same thing. Now, the title of this season, Tunnel Vision, was chosen for this very reason, and that's because it potentially applies to everyone involved with the Garcia case, the Omaha Police Department, the DA's office, the defense, and if they're correct about Garcia, then it can be said that he suffered from tunnel vision as well. Now, as far as OPD goes, once they set their sights on Garcia, they quit investigating the possibility that anyone else could have committed the Hunter Sherman and Brumbeck killings. And they landed on Garcia in very short order with really nothing more than mere presence in the state of Nebraska on the day of the Brumbeck killings to go on because they had no forensic evidence from either killings that linked Garcia to either crime scene. And they also had no evidence that Garcia was in the state of Nebraska on the day that Thomas Hunter and Shirley Sherman were killed. But what they did have was a story, a narrative that fit, and they would work their way backwards from that story to make sure that it looked as if it fit like a glove. Now, in order for the state and the police to be able to do that, that required that they go back and whitewash any mention of the Blanchard killing and that they had been investigating them jointly that had been contained within the police reports and the rest of the discovery that was turned over to us. Now, why would they go through the trouble of doing this? Well, that's simple. Because the Blanchard killing did not fit their narrative, as there was absolutely no connection between Garcia and Blanchard. And as you can imagine, that fact would not play well to a jury. Would ultimately be my partner and my wife, Allison, who was digging through thousands and thousands of documents, who discovered one singular piece of paper. They clearly stated that Omaha PD and the FBI were investigating all three sets of murders under the premise that the same serial killer had committed all of the crimes. It would be this singular document 
which would lead the defense to filing a motion with the court that the entire Blanchard file must be turned over to the defense. Now, did the court force the state to turn the Blanchard file over? And if so, what did we discover? The answers to those questions? Well, you're just going to have to wait for them. But trust me when I tell you this. As far as this case goes, eight episodes in, you ain't heard nothing yet. Welcome to Defense Diaries. I'm your host, Bob Mata, and this is Episode 9. Shackles on his hands and feet. We left off last episode with Omaha PD narrowing in on several possible suspects, namely Adrian Lepore, who seemingly bears a striking resemblance to the composite sketch. Officer Yetz has circled back to show the photo array of 26 pictures to three of the eyewitnesses who had gotten a good look at the stranger. All of them confirmed that indeed, he does look a lot like the man they saw, but none of them were willing to go as far as to positively identifying Lepore as the stranger. And quite frankly, that is the prudent move by all three of the women, because the last thing a witness should ever do is positively identify a suspect as the perp if in fact they are not positive that it's the right person. You know, it's that whole unreliable witness thing that we're always discussing on the pod. So at this point, OPD has pulled Lepore's criminal history and is now aware that he has a violent and checkered past, including several domestic violence charges with his former girlfriend, who becomes intertwined within the story as the police proceed to interview a couple that had once employed Lepore's ex-girlfriend, Marcella, as a caregiver, and who believed that they, in fact, may have been the intended targets of the killer, but that the killer had confused the hunter's address for their address. It's an interesting concept, and at this juncture, OPD is in no position to discount any potential lead offhand. So, they will dig in and see if the Lepore angle has legs. Now, before Lepore entered the picture as a possible suspect, Yetz and Detective Watson were able to sit down with Claire Hunter, and while they didn't learn much, they were able to add Claire's name to the growing list of witnesses that believes that Shirley was the target of the killer and that Shirley's daughter's boyfriend is the person that they should be looking most closely at. And Officer Linda Yetz, who's been incredibly busy since the day of the killings, also ensures that the forensic evidence pulled from the hunter's home finally makes its way to the DNA lab of the University of Nebraska in order to see if there is a viable DNA profile that has been left behind by the killer. So, now that we are all caught up, let's dig in. While many of the officers are using their valuable time to track down leads based off the interviews with witnesses and tips left on the Crime Stoppers tip line, Detectives Derek Moise and Doug Harout are looking at a different angle completely, which is to closely examine Thomas's online acquaintances. First, they must subpoena both Xbox Live and Yville in order to get the full transcripts of all of those participants' interactions with Thomas, as well as any information of just who exactly many of these people are. 
as they all use screen names which give no indication of their actual identity. Now, once they have that information, they then need to hunt them down, which is no easy feat because this is an online community that we're talking about, which means that Thomas's online friends could be located nearly anywhere on the globe. Now, if you're thinking to yourself that this sounds like an incredibly daunting task, well, that's because it was. And what OPD did initially is that they were able to get a hold of the phone bill that included Thomas's phone number in order to determine if Thomas had phone contact with any of his online friends. If they get lucky and figure out who they are, they must then seek permission from the parents in order to speak with them. And as you can imagine, this is a time-consuming process, but one that they feel needs to be examined closely. Because at this point, they are a month into the investigation and they aren't even close to naming a suspect. So Detective Doug Harout, in his interview with Jeff Hunter directly after the murders had occurred, broached this very subject, which may be helpful in determining who some of these people are. Let's take a listen and see if Jeff can shed any light. Were you aware of, like, Tom's schedule after school, when he came home from school? What went on? Did he ever talk to you about that? Did Tom ever talk to me about that? Like, yeah. what he did? Right. Um, not really. I just knew he came home right about, like, usually, because if I've been home from school, like, I remember him coming home at, like, three or something. Right on there. Then usually he just went straight down and played video games. Well, in the time since you've been gone, are you aware of what goes on after school? Has he ever talked to you about that? No. Were you aware that he would leave home and go down to Dundee and hang out? I was not. No, I didn't know that. Okay. It's part of, you know, part of what I do is I talk to different people, and that's one of the things that I've heard is that he would not stay home. He would go down to Dundee, hang out for that hour difference. Oh. No, and hook up with his buddies, so he never talked to you about that? No. Okay, we talked a little bit about the, the Internet, and you guys kind of focused on mm-hmm. Internet safety, things like that. We kind of started touching on it at the house, um, but other things kind of led us astray. Do you remember ever having an issue? Did he ever come to you uh, with any kind of issues he might have been having? Somebody preying on him on the internet? No, never, nothing, nothing, never specific. You know, I never, I, I was just always telling him, you know, just warning him. But I did tell you, you know, he kind of got embarrassed if I tried to look at it while he's on it. Did you ever get a? Did you ever sneak a peek and see what actually was on there? Yeah. What did you see? Well, just like that little eye chat windows, you know. Mm-hmm. Like you'd have some of those open, and I could tell they weren't like school friends or something. You're just talking to because it was like, you know, I can't remember specifically, but like I could just the way the conversations were like. Well, the best the best you can remember would be really helpful. Well. I- Probably, like, I want to say, like, just standard, like, you know, where are you from, blah, 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 but I'm not sure about that. I just remember, you know, something stuck out and said, this, that's not a friend. Well, you know the difference between an adult chat and how yeah. kids talk. Kids talk kind of like... Yeah, well, I, I'm not, I, it didn't look like... It was just because he had that Y-bill thing up, mm-hmm. and then behind that, in different, in different windows, he had the iChat things. So what I got was 
you know, he'd talk to people in the Y-Bell and then he'd get their, they'd exchange the AIM names. Say that again, he'd talk to them from what? That Y-Bell website. Y, like the letter Y-Bell? W-H-Y-V-I-L-L-E. Because that's why he, he spent a lot of time on that. Is that a kid site or an adult site? It, kids site, because it's kind of like, you know, um, I think it's it's like the like the it's like the sim thing where you can make your yeah you make like a little make a family make your you can get married that's one where he was married right somebody mentioned he had a wife on there I don't know something to that effect I just I, I remember every time he was on the computer he'd almost always be on that on Wideville yeah or have it on in a different window or something you saw some text messages too he was trying to hide yeah. Were you ever, ever able to read those? Um, one was a picture message of some guy that said, this is me when I'm bored or something like that. Of an adult? I uh, might have been like early, like a teenager or something. What was the picture of? Just a guy's face. Okay. And then there were some text messages from, like, talking about school, like, I'm in this class, this is boring, blah, blah, blah. I don't remember. Did you ask him about the picture of the guy? I did. What did he say? He just kind of, you know, didn't want to talk about it and ran off. Like, because I was telling him, because my dad was looking at the bill, and he was sitting there playing video games, and this was going on. And my dad was looking at the bill, and like Peter in the other room, he's like, what's this number, this number, and who's this, what's this text message number from? And he's like, I don't know. And so I grabbed his phone and he kind of started freaking out. And I was like, I'm not going to look at your text messages. I just want to see where they're from. The phone number? Yeah. And he was just, he was really upset about it. When? When was this? I want to say that weekend, the weekend before my birthday. So just two weeks before that? Three weeks before. What? Three weeks? I remember it earlier. I'm trying to think. Because was, that was when my dad was asking me about how to put parental controls on the Xbox. Putting that into context, your brother freaking out when you're looking at his phone or trying to look at his computer. Mm-hmm. Is this a freak out because he's an 11-year-old and he's pissed at Big Brother's Bugging on yeah, him, or is he an eleven-year-old that's, that's freaking out because he's embarrassed of something, or I truly doesn't want you to? The computer one. When I looked at the computer, it seemed more like you know, just you know, it's my stuff. You know, quit. But then the phone, I thought it was kind of, you know, he kind of really freaked out, like you know, started yelling, just fighting me for it, and like stormed off. And what's your gut reaction to that, or what did you think? I was worried. Like, I mean, I, I thought, you know, maybe just like a girlfriend, you know. But then when I saw that, you know. Did you express, sorry. No. Did you express that to your dad? Yeah, I told, I, sh- I, I got pretty sure I showed my dad. I can't remember. But I, was, I, I mean, my dad seemed pretty, I don't remember. I think he looked it up online. He looked up the area codes online, I know. Where was the area code? And one was Rhode Island or something, and then one was... I think that picture one was from Rhode Island, if I remember correctly. I can't remember. 
then one was Michigan, and I can't remember there. If you can try to try to reach in your memory on this, okay? I know this is tough because quite a while ago. If you look at that picture, can you describe what that picture looked like? I want to say like probably Asian American, maybe. Like he looked like an Asian kid, maybe. But he looked young. He didn't look like you know. I don't know. You said nineteen-ish. Probably younger than that. I don't know. He just. And when you say Asian male, are you talking eye characteristics, nose, skin color, hair? What do you What do you think well, yeah. about? Can't remember exactly, but yeah, probably eyes. And what about skin tone? I, it was a phone picture. Um, kind of hard to tell. Yeah, it was kind of dark. The skin, oh, the skin, the skin color isn't kind of dark, but the the picture is kind of dark. But I'd say probably light white. You know, maybe tan. I don't know. I can't. I'm trying to picture it right now, but. Do you remember what that area code was? Okay, but you, you looked it up online and saw it was Rhode Island? I'm pretty sure. There, I remember one being from Rhode Island or the Rhode Island area somewhere in there. And then one was in Michigan. Those are the two that stick out in my head. Do you know what the Michigan one was? No. And then was that just a text message or was that another picture? Which the, the Michigan? Well, there's a couple of text messages like that that were like, I'm going to school right now, I'm in this class. You know, and those are from the Michigan one. Mm-hmm. All right, I don't remember which exactly which one. Okay. Chef, you need a break or use the bathroom or something. Just take a water soda. I'm all right. Okay. So, your gut feeling on seeing that stuff, it made you worried. Well, yeah. I mean, I didn't know if it was just you know other kids because like the ones that were talking about school like I'm in this class this class is boring this teacher's stupid right I didn't know if the you know and then I thought maybe that I didn't know I didn't know about the picture okay did you confront Tom about that picture I asked him who it was and he's kind of you know he's still kind of you know like he's still mad so he didn't really So he didn't say anything, or he did, or... I can't remember. Okay. Jeff clearly has some concerns with his brother's online activities, and these concerns do nothing but encourage OPD to continue to travel down this incredibly winding road. Now, as Jeff had predicted, it would end up being Thomas's Nokia flip phone that would lead the cops to their first online friend that Tom was communicating with in real life. As you can imagine, Tom's phone was recovered in the initial search. And of course, law enforcement began searching Tom's phone for contacts, made calls, missed calls, and text threads. What they immediately discover is that there was one particular number that Tom was communicating with very frequently via text. This number, as it turns out, belongs to a 15-year-old girl that we will simply refer to as Laney Royalty. In order to protect her identity, that is how we will refer to her. So it turns out that she lives in the south suburbs of Chicago. So OPD reaches out to the law enforcement agency in Illinois to ask for their assistance in coordinating to get Laney into the station for an interview. As it turns out, 
the South Suburban Police Agency is more than willing to assist in the murder investigation, and they are able to coordinate with Lanny's mother to get her into the station for an interview with detectives Derek Moise and Scott Warner. So ultimately, arrangements are made and the assignment is approved by the brass. So the two cops are taking a road trip to Illinois, hoping desperately that this young woman can provide the officers with something, anything, that will help them catch a killer. Moise and Warner take the drive to Illinois, and they arrive at the station, and waiting inside of the interview room is Laney Royalty. And what you are about to hear is a portion of that interview. Again, I'm going to just go back to, I'll trust what you say because you seem like a sharp broad. What do you think? You think social's just, uh, you think he's a decent guy or do you think if social called you tomorrow or interacted with you tomorrow and said, hey, I'm in wherever, I want to meet, would you meet the guy? Yeah. Okay. Why? I don't know. I just like, I just don't know him well enough. Do you think that, is there anything else that's been said that you know, you just don't want to share with us, and it's totally okay to say, I don't really want to talk to you guys about that. You can say that kind of thing, too. You can say, well, you know, the session is not a target of our investigation. But again, it, it helps us understand what other kinds of people we might be talking with online, what kinds of things might have been going on. Obviously, it's, uh, it's a college-age guy, even if he's homosexual or whatever, and he's talking on Wyville to kids. Tom's age or your age, there's potential that there's other people out there. Isn't that fair to say? I mean, that's where our thought process is. Maybe it doesn't happen. Maybe there's obviously potential there. You know, anything else that you can think of that other people that Tom could have been exposed to? I really don't know who he would talk to other than me here. Maybe it was... Yeah, I don't know. I just know him that, like, as that kind of person that wouldn't want to meet something new, but maybe. Would, do you think if Tom ever got weirded out by, because he talked to somebody online, do you think he ever would have mentioned it to you? Yeah, he probably told me. He would have? Yeah. I think so. Um, same token, would you have ever discussed it with him if everybody, if anybody had ever kind of creeped you out? Like, mm-hmm. To warn him, hey, if you're talking to this guy, are you saying this guy on Wyville or mm-hmm. he, he's bad news? Do you, you ever remember that happening between you and Tom? Mm-hmm. Not once. Have you ever had anybody that you've talked to, even briefly, that's ever tried to take that next step from just talking to you online, saying, hey, you know, sounds like we have a lot of fun. You want to get together sometime or try to make arrangements to actually meet in person or ask you for your address or your phone number? Yeah. Have you ever seen that happen at all on Wyville that somebody, when you're in this open chat or whatever it's called, that somebody asks for information fast just talking on the internet? Yeah, but they probably would say that. Is that I'm, the kind I'm of never... thing that would get caught? Yeah. Okay. Do you remember what, this, uh, what he called himself on Wyville? Did he have a screen name or anything like that? Yeah, but I don't remember. Would he be under your friends? No. No? Um, Is there an age limit on Wyville? No, but 
adults should act their own age. But that's like, it's what is wanted. You know, they're not supposed to act like a kid just because they're on a kid's side. Does Sergeant act like a kid no. on a kid's side? Or does no. he act like a college so student? Apparently he's an older guy. And now he'll be like, oh, I'm so old, why am I on this thing? Okay. Does he spend a lot of time on there? No, I haven't talked. You want to take a little break and maybe just go to a If you got on live though right now, can you just kind of walk us around and familiarize us okay. with it on a computer out there? Okay. You want to do that? Okay. I mean, I'm sure we can do that. You know, we're asking you a ton of questions, and we probably asked you the same thing several times. Yeah, but I want to help. We're just so concerned that we may not ask the right question or you know, there might be something there that we just overlooked. And not being somebody who uses Wyville, you know, it's hard for me to picture exactly what you're talking about. Maybe we get on the computer, it, it will make it easier. But I think you obviously understand we're just looking for anything that would be inappropriate or would raise one suspicion of things that, you know, that seemed a little bit odd. But, you know, short of that, and if you think of anything in the future, We'll give you and your mom our, our contact numbers. You can call us at any time or, or email us you know, with anything that you think. Short of the one time that you and Canelo talked about what happened to Thomas in Omaha, have you ever talked to anybody else about that online? Just because I know that like he would care. He's the type of person that would be like, wow, um, I do want that to happen. Yeah, and what did he say when you told him about it? I told him to uh, look it up online because I didn't have a I didn't have internet access when I was on vacation. Just text message. Yeah. Can you access your friends list from any computer or like if you got on? Can you? If it has Java. Yeah. Okay. You said you tried to contact Thomas several times and didn't get a response. Yeah, I was like, are you still sick? And I, I would uh, text message his phone and say, are you okay? Were you wondering what was going on? Or yeah. So it kind of makes sense now. Mm -hmm. How long did you do that? Well, before we contacted you, were you still trying to get a hold of him, or are you kind of giving up? I kind of gave up after, like, after school went out. What did you think about when you heard about what had happened? Um, I was really upset. Obviously pretty surprised. Yeah. Because, you know, Thomas did. Well, it made, it made sense to me because um, he wasn't talking. Yeah, why you kind of lost touch with them. <laughs> is there anything at all that came to your mind when you heard what had happened? Like, oh my God, I wonder if this is what happened. Did you ever have that kind of a, of a thought process? I thought maybe he wasn't really sick. Maybe something was wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, he said he, he, he told me he was like really sick or something. Mm -hmm. I don't. He had some medical problems. So it's not, I don't think he was you know, lying about that. We know he was sick for a time, but. Nothing really that would have precipitated what happened to him. But you know how if you know somebody and you've known them long enough and something like this were to happen, you know, you might start formulating in your own mind, I wonder if this is what happened or I wonder if this is what happened. When you're doing that, you're kind of unconsciously, you know, you're putting things together in your head. You're theorizing, well, Jesus, I wonder if this happened. You know what I mean? Did you go through that thought process when you heard about what happened to Tom? No, all I thought about was, uh, like, was he lying if something was wrong? I don't know if he would tell me or not. And there was never a time at all where Thomas was maybe confided in anything at all to you, and I don't care how sensitive it 
this or how strange it might be. Anything at all that he would have said to you that made you go, you know, this kid's got some, got more things going on in his life than your average kid, or you know what I'm getting? Yeah, I would. Do you think Thomas would have said something to you? Or do you think you guys just didn't have that kind of? I think he would have. You think so? We were friends, yeah. So after the interview, Moise and Warner have to be somewhat disappointed with the results. While it's true that Lanny may have been some assistance in helping identify a couple of the other Wyville users, the end result is that they do not appear to be any closer in narrowing in on a suspect. This, however, does not dissuade Moise from continuing down this path, as this is exactly what he does. Now, will it lead them to a killer or Will it be a huge waste of money and time? It's a journey that Moise is fully committed to taking. Meanwhile, several days after Yetz gets the list of disgruntled Creighton employees, she and Detective Scott Warner take a ride over to Bill Hunter's office at Creighton in order to try and get some more info on Michael Belenke, the former resident that Angela Barrico made Yetz aware of a couple days earlier. Now, the real purpose of the visit is to try and determine if this is a lead that OPD should use time and money on, as tracking this guy down will not be an easy task and, more likely than not, will require a trip out of the country. So let's see what Bill Hunter remembers about Belenke's time at Creighton. As the particular audio of this interview is unusable, I will be going through the police report and going through it in a question and answer format, where I will be acting as both Detective Scott Warner and Bill Hunter. So let's jump in. Warner. Bill, thank you for seeing us. What do you remember about a former resident named Michael Belenke? Well, I remember that he left the pathology department back in July of 2007. Are you aware of what Belenke is doing now? I believe that he is in the fellowship program in the forensic pathology department of the Allegheny County Coroner's Office in Pittsburgh. Thank you for that, Bill. That's very helpful. So let me ask you this. Did you have any issues with Belenke about the number of autopsies he completed during his time at Creighton? No, we were having disagreements about him failing to complete the paperwork properly that is required when an autopsy is conducted. He kept forgetting to insert the age and sex of the deceased on the forms. It was a problem. Well, what ended up happening with that? Well, he had a lot of issues during his time here. Professionally, he did an okay job. But personally, it was a bit of a nightmare. His issues with other employees got so bad that he became depressed. I, I would consider him to be clinically depressed. So much so that it was interfering with his work. And because of this, we made a mandate that he had to go to counseling to deal with his issues. After he failed to attend counseling for over a month, we put him on review, which is just one step below probation. Mm, that's interesting. Do you, do you know why he refused to attend the counseling? Well, like many of the doctors, he thought he could treat himself. Well, how did Belenke respond to being put on review? He was very, very bitter about it. He had a tardiness problem as well, and that was becoming a problem for his co-workers. And when they voiced their concerns, well, he felt that he was being discriminated against because he was Jewish. Well, what came about from that situation? 
Well, ultimately, he went to the Equal Opportunities Commission and filed a complaint. Frankly, I was surprised that he did that. Well, who did he file a complaint against? Creighton, overall, but uh, that means that it would have actually been against Roger Brumbett because he was the program head and the chair of the department. I I just wish he would have come and talked with me before he did that. I I could have talked him out of it. Well, why would you have wanted to do that? Well, because once it goes to the EOC, it becomes public. Okay, well, that makes sense. So what was the basis of his complaint? Well, he claimed that he was being discriminated against because he was Jewish and because he had been scheduled on some of the High Holy Holidays. Well, anything else? Well, yes. Belenke had accused a chief resident, a Dr. Tom, of making sexual advances on him. In his complaint, he complained that he had been discriminated against because he did not return the sexual advances. Well, what happened with the lawsuit? Well, Creighton settled it out of court. We were told after settlement that we were to have no communication with him. Well, what were the terms of the settlement? Uh, The agreement was that we would not put him on probation and that there would be no record of him being on review or probation and that his records would show that he successfully completed the program. Blinky agreed that he would not disclose the terms of the settlement with anyone. The last thing was that Creighton had a gag order placed on it, meaning no one at Creighton was allowed to talk about the suit or talk to Belenke. It was for this reason that he had such a hard time getting his records. The clerical staff refused to talk to him. Did that end the issues of Belenke? Unfortunately, no. One of the faculty members, Dr. Sharmad, felt threatened by him. She did not want to be alone with him. He frightened her. She said he was overly aggressive and competitive with her, and that he was completely disrespectful to her. She made several complaints about this. So did Belenke get any money from the suit? No, uh, and I did write a letter of recommendation for him as a result of the suit. Well, is there anything else that you learned about Belenke? What about his Russian background? Well, his application says that he attended St. Petersburg State Medical Academy in Russia from 1984 to 1990. Then from 1995, it says that he went to the University of British Columbia and got a bachelor's in pharmacology. All of this information is supposed to be verified, but getting records from Russia is very difficult, and I'm not sure that it ever was verified. Let me ask you this, Bill. Did Belenke ever meet Thomas? Well, Tommy would come in to the office occasionally, but it was usually during the week and after an appointment and would, you know, typically be from like 3.30 to 5 in the evening. And I'm not sure if he ever did meet Tommy. I I can't say that he did but I I can't say that he didn't either. Okay. Well, had Belenke ever been to your home? I'm not sure. Dr. Pathan usually had the parties at his house, so I I don't know. Now, this interview continues as Warner and Yetz will inquire about the other names that Alberico gave them. But we'll come back to that, because one thing is for certain. The guy that has OPD most interested is without a doubt... Michael Belenke. Shortly after Warner conducted the interview with Bill Hunter, he made a trip to the Douglas County Jail in order to interview the flavor of the month, as far as suspects go, Adrian Lepore. Now, Warner wants to have another cop with him just in the event that he has to good cop, bad cop Lepore. So he selects Officer John Bali. The two of them are placed in interview room number four and they wait for Lepore to be brought in by his captors. 
Warner tells Bali to handle getting the preliminary info from Lepore. And when it comes time, he'll jump in and he'll take a run at him. Bali nods in agreement. Moments later, Lepore is brought in, shackled at his hands and feet. Lepore takes a seat and introductions are made. Bali asks Lepore for his date of birth and his current address, which Lepore supplies to the officers. Bali then inquires as to what kind of car he currently owns. Lepore tells him that he doesn't own a car. What about a buddy's car that you may borrow from time to time? Nah, man, I ain't got no buddies that loan me their car. Well, fair enough, but do you have a valid license at this time? Nah, they suspended my license. They caught me driving on the suspended, and I've been revoked for 15 years. Well, how do you get around? I either get a lift from my friends or my girl, or I take the damn bus. That's rough, but Adrian, do you have a job at this point? Nah, I've been in and out of the joint. Last time I got out, I was only out for about a month, and I couldn't find a gig in that amount of time. But I did work for a few days for a temp agency last time I was out. So, you know, I at least had money to eat and shit. Yeah, I I get it, but where did they place you to work? It was a tortilla factory. It wasn't a fun job. I'm sure. It sounds like it's a tough job. When was the last time you were in jail? I got out of here on February 28th of this year, and I picked up the new charges on the 27th of March. Bali and Warner at this point give each other a knowing look, as this confirms that Lepore was not incarcerated at the time of the murders. Bali continues with the questioning. So what's the deal with you and Marcella? Are you guys still together? Oh, Cella, yeah, man. We, we've been on and off for years, ups and downs. Shit can get real rocky at times. Right now, it's real rocky. So you're not currently in a relationship with her right now, Adrian? <sighs> nah, she won't even bail my ass out. She's pissed. Yeah, I mean, I get that from her perspective. It's got to be tough, you know, in a relationship with a guy who's in and out of the joint all the time. Let me ask you this. Have you ever gone to work with Marcella, for instance, at the Nelson's home? Yeah, yeah, there was one time when she brought me over there back in 2005. I, I went over there and, you know, she told me to chill in the basement while she handled the business uh, with the old man upstairs. She's a caretaker and a uh, dude is in a wheelchair. He, you know, he got in a real bad accident. Uh, I think he's paralyzed or something. All right. Is there anything else that you can tell me about that day? Lapore furrows his brow as if in thought. Not that I can think of. Oh, no. oh wait, wait, yeah, yeah. That same day I got arrested. I, I actually called the cops on myself because I was hallucinating real bad. I was having some crazy ass hallucinations. So you called the cops on yourself? That's unusual, Adrian. What did they end up arresting you for that day? Like, what did they charge you with? Uh, they got me for violating an order of protection. Who had the OP against you? Marcella? <laughs> yeah, man, I told you it was an up-and-down relationship. We had gotten into it a few months before, but, you know, we were trying to work it out. But I was fucked up that day. I'd been drinking, and then, you know, I'd hit some meth. I, I was tweaking pretty hard, and, you know, that's why Cella brought me with her, because I was tweaking so hard she was afraid to leave me alone because I sometimes do really stupid shit when I'm like that. That sounds like a rough day, Adrian. But uh, have you ever been back to the Nelson's home? 
uh, yeah, there, there was one time I went over there, but I, I didn't go in the house. I was walking up to the house and the lady and some lawn guy came up to me and she asked me if my name was Adrian. And you know, I told her it was and her face got all red and she told me to get off her property and to never come back or she's going to call the cops. So, you know, I left and I've never been back. Well, that must have pissed you off, right? Look, I didn't like her telling me for no reason and yelling at me to get off of her property, but, you know, it is her property, so she had the right to kick me off of it. Well, that was definitely the right move, Adrian. Uh, Let me ask you this. If I were to drop you off at some random spot in Omaha, would you be able to find your way back to the Nelson's home? The poor gives Bali a confused look. Nah, man, I, I don't think I'd be able to find their house. All right, well, can you describe what their house looks like? Like, give me some specifics about the house. Hey, man, what, what the fuck is this all about? Do I, do I need a lawyer or something? No, you're not in any trouble here. We're just trying to get some info from you so we can check you off the list. List? What list? Well, unfortunately, Adrian, I'm not at liberty to tell you because it's an active case, but I can tell you that we're not looking at you for it. We just need to cover our bases here. So can you tell me anything that you know about what their house looks like? All I could tell you, man, is that it's big. It's a big house. Okay, so it's big, but what's it made out of? For instance, wood, brick, siding, is it painted? Any details will help, Adrian. Look, man, I really don't remember. I've seen it a couple times in my entire life, you know? I'm not lying here. So you can hear at this juncture what Bali is trying to do, right? The Nelson's theory that they were really the target requires that Lepore doesn't really recall what their home looks like. Because if he's intimately familiar with what their home does look like, then that theory that he mistook the homes doesn't hold water. Let's see where he goes from here. Well, what about their address? Do you know their address, Adrian? Whose address? The Nelson's? No, I don't, man. I have no idea what their address is. So it's your statement to me that you were high and drunk both times that you were at their home. Yeah, yeah, I was. Now, I want to circle back to the hallucinations that you were talking about. Are are these common? I mean, are you seeing things that don't exist? Yeah, man, I I have hallucinations all the time. My mind is whacked out, man. It's, It's weird as fuck. But do you know what triggers the hallucinations? I'm not sure, man. Well, let me ask you this. Are you a meth user? Yeah, I've used meth. And when was the last time you used? I honestly can't remember, man. When you were using, how often are you getting high? Maybe once a month or, you know, whenever somebody gives me some. Are you a big drinker? Yeah, I like to drink. When you drink, where do you usually drink? Usually in my parents' house where I'm staying at. I I don't really go out to the bars because I ain't got the money to drink out. So I usually drink at my folks' house. Look, I'm getting a real weird vibe here, man. I I do have hallucinations, and I drink, and I do mess sometimes, but I'm not a violent person, man. I don't rob, I don't steal, and I don't burglarize, and I don't assault people. I never said that you did any of those things, Adrian. Now, here, Bali notes specifically in his report that Lepore made these statements without prompting 
or questioning, Bali has some more inquiries. Do you still have strong feelings for Marcella? Yeah, man, I love her, you know, but we aren't together now. Yeah, I, I understand that, but let me put this delicately. If Marcella was having a problem with someone, would you take it upon yourself to correct that problem for her? No, man, that's Cella's business and that ain't my thing. I ain't handling other people's shit. I got enough of my own shit to deal with. You know, you know what I mean? At this point, Warner jumps in. Yeah, we hear you, Adrian. But if I were to ask you to describe Mrs. Nelson from memory, could you do it? I honestly don't think I could. I mean, it's real fuzzy. I, I do think that she's a spoiled brat, though. But I ain't got no hard feelings against her for kicking me off her property. I understand that, Adrian. But I, I need you to try and do the best that you can to describe to me from your memory what you think Mrs. Nelson looks like. I mean, she's a good-looking lady for being older. I, I think she's about my height. Is there anything else that you can recall about her? No, not really. Look, I need you to do something else for us. You'd be saving us a ton of time. Can you remember specific dates that you were out of jail? I can remember some of the dates, like the ones I already told you, but I can't remember them all. Okay, well, let me ask you about this date. What about March 3rd of this year? Do you remember where you were? I actually do remember that day because that was four days after I got out of here. And I remember it specifically because when I called Chella, she told me that you waited four damn days to call me when you got out. So that night I spent the night at her place. And then in the morning I went back to my parents' place, which is where I've been staying at since I've been out. Okay, well, let me ask you about this date specifically. Can you remember the 13th of March? Do you remember where you were on that day? Nah, I, I can't really remember that day. They all kind of run together for me, you know what I mean? If I had to guess, I'd say I was at my folks' house. That's mostly where I chill, so I don't get in no more trouble. I seem to fuck up a lot when I'm not at home. At this point in the interview, both cops are going at Lepore as Bali jumps back in. Let me ask you this, Adrian. Do you think that Marcella was treated fairly by the Nelsons? Oh, yeah, man. They treated her real good, and they paid her right, too. They even hired her back after they had fired her one time. You know, when she was working for them, she'd get over there at 6 in the morning and work until 8 at night, and wherever the old man went, Cella went with him. Now it's Warner's turn. Do you have any anger or aggression for either the Nelsons or Marcella? No, no, I don't. They ain't never done me wrong. I care about Cella. I got no beef with her. At this point, Warner takes a long, hard stare into the eyes of the poor, trying to determine if this man's telling the truth. He then knocks on the window, indicating to the guard standing outside the room that they were done with him. They thank Lepore for his time and let him know most likely they'll be back to talk to him again. With that, they terminate the interview. So the interview with Lepore definitely has not given Warner or Bali any reason to believe that he definitely was not involved in the Dundee killings. He hallucinates, he uses meth, he drinks, he claims he's not violent, but his criminal background says different, and he can't remember where he was on the day of the murders. So he doesn't have an alibi. He also can't remember what the Nelson's house looks like, 
really what Miss Nelson looks like. He could most definitely be the guy. Warner and Bali have some work to do in order to clear Lepore. And they are going to start by speaking with both Marcella and Lepore's parents in order to try and narrow down his whereabouts on the day in question. This is going to get interesting. So at this point in the investigation, we have what seems to be three viable suspects almost a month in. Lepore, Belanke, and Kelly's boyfriend. OPD is waiting on the DNA results from the lab, and they have a lot of digging around to do with respect to all three of these men. Is an arrest imminent? Will there be a match as to DNA or prints left at the scene? Well, you'll just have to wait until the next episode of Defense Diaries. All right, y'all, some quick shout-outs to the team. As always, first and foremost, to my partner in crime, EP extraordinaire, Darren Wood. Thanks for all you do, brother. And to our musical maestros, Taras Horoluski and Ryan Gack, we love you, we love your suit. And to Alex Carver for all your fantastic art that you create for us. And to Courtney Reese, a new addition, my daughter, who has taken over our socials, along with Alex. And she is crushing it. Except on Twitter. That's me. Always me. And finally, to my amazing wife, Allie, for keeping us afloat while we tried to turn the show into a monster. Which reminds me to beg you all out there to subscribe and follow to the pod wherever you get your pods. That is how we move into the top 200 on Apple. You have the power. Use it. And to our amazing patrons who support us and who we adore. You guys are our favorites. And finally, to all of you, our beautiful listeners, thank you, thank you, thank you for hanging with us every week. Because without you, I'd just be an old man talking about an old case. Talk at you next time.